Today's reading is from Philippians 4, verses 10 to 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. So as I have done a lot this summer, um, I wanted to take a moment before the message and explain a little uh, snapshot of one of the things that Liberty is, is about as a community. And this may be fairly obvious to you, but we're a community that is about worshiping God. And we're, you have caught that because you're here this morning. Um, but this is, a, this is an incredibly important value for us. And I want to give a little bit of meat on the bones for how we express this as a church. Um, we believe that worship is not just a calling of what we do once a week as we come into a beautifully decorated room like this and express and sing songs. But worship is actually centering our lives around Jesus Christ and making him the ultimate priority that we have making him first in our lives. And what we do in this place is an expression of that. It's saying we remember when we come here. We, we come here to sort of get recalibrated into that, that um, north star for where our lives are centered around. What's the direction? And when you come into worship here, um, we have really spent a lot of time, uh, Jeff in particular, who um, was doing the announcements a moment ago, who, who directs the, the worship ministry, um, really has spent a lot of time thinking about what happens when you're in this space. And it's not because this is everything. In fact, it's not, we believe that this is, like I said, this is part of our recalibration. This is part of helping us kind of get reoriented for how we spend the rest of our weeks. But it's, we, we spend a lot of time in focus thinking about what happens in this place. And for some of you, you've been in churches before. You've been in churches before and you, and you sort of know what to do. And so you, you kind of come in here and this may be sort of distracting to you. You know, we have people standing up and getting down and explaining what we're doing. We are very, one of the reasons that we do that is because we realize that people don't automatically just sort of know what to do with worship. This is hard for us. This is work. And so we, every week we have someone stand up. Um, this morning Sonia did this and, and walked us through, explained why are we doing these things. And, you know, we really are inviting you to enter into this and actually to take what happens in this place and make this part of your week. That's why we give you a bulletin to take home. It's not because we just hate trees. It's because we actually hope that this aids you in your worship for the rest of the week. Uh, one of the reasons you may not have been at a church where they take uh, the Lord's Supper every week. And we believe this is really something central to what it means for us to be a community that centers around Jesus. What we do in this place is very intentional. And it's also a place where we are saying we want this to be accessible to everyone. One of the reasons we, in, we interpret, hey, why do we confess sins? What is that about? Why do we take an offering? What's that about? What's a benediction? Why do we do those things? Is so that people, whether you come in here and you're very churched in your background or this is your first church, we want you to be able to say, I know this may not be comfortable, but I understand why we're doing this. You know, part of what happens in this place, though, is not just what Jeff prepares or what the worship team prepares or what I prepare. A lot of what happens in this place is what you prepare. I want to ask you to really be thoughtful 
about what you do coming into this place. I want to ask you to think about on your Saturday night, I'm going to meet with God's people tomorrow. Am I ready to do this? I want to ask you to think about being here for the start of the service. Some of you are like, you know, those are the hors d'oeuvres and the appetizers and the salad. I'm going to show up for the main course. You know, all of this was prepared for you as a meal. And I want to encourage you to come hungry. And I want to encourage you to come when the dinner bell rings. And come together as a people. You know, we really need one another to worship. We don't do this as, you know, one of the reasons we pass the peace is it's a recognition. This isn't, um, you know, something I can download just on my iPod while I'm jogging. You know, I'll just worship God. We really need to do this together. Your singing encourages me. Your praying encourages me. You know, when we come together and we celebrate this, we say, this is what I'm about, and you do that in front of one another, it teaches one another. It says, yeah, this is sanity. This is life. This is what this is about. So I want to encourage us to be people who worship, who say, this, this is really important to me. Let me lead us in prayer and ask God to help us you know, it is the hard, one of the hardest things we do. It's one of the most significant things we do when we come to worship. Let's pray together. Lord God, we pray. We worship so many other things all week, and it is hard for us to learn to worship you. We thank you that you've given us a family to do that within. We thank you that we don't just have a little instruction manual, but Lord, you invite us into an experience of this as a community. Lord, help us to encourage one another. We thank you that this isn't just here for me and mine. This is here for us. Lord, we pray that we would come hungry. We would come prepared to worship, prepared to encourage each other in these things. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your holy name, that you might become central, more central in our lives. We pray this. Amen. We're going to look, um, continuing our series in the book of Philippians. We're about to wrap up. Uh, next week, my friend uh, Dave White will be, will be here uh, and give... Take us to the close of this series. Um, I'm still going to be here, but I'm going to be um, enjoying the victory of Liberty Palooza over the other congregations. So um, we're looking today at Philippians chapter 4 and a very, very short section. Philippians 4, a very short section. It's sort of a part two to last week's sermon. You know, I hate the ice cream man. I really, really hate the ice cream man. The ice cream man, I don't know about your neighborhood, but the ice cream man drives the truck around my neighborhood and plays a song that's just a little bit out of tune, that sounds like it was recorded many, many times before and re-recorded over and over on the thing, and it sounds a little sick, and they come around way too often and way too late at night for for my taste. You know, so I hate the ice cream man, but I really hate the ice cream man, not just for the music and for the annoyance, but because the ice cream man has a particular way of stirring up discontentment. You know, in my family, we don't shop the ice cream man. I don't want to encourage this guy. You know, but I am amazed at my children's ability to pick up on the ice cream truck song from miles away when they can't hear their mom calling them to help out in the kitchen in the next room. The ice cream man has a way of stirring up discontentment. Everybody knows what the ice cream man's all about. You know, the problem for me, and probably for you, is that this world is full of ice cream trucks. You know, there's all kinds of joy robbers, contentment stealers. You know, there's 
television. There's mail-order catalogs. I can go on the list. I mean, you know, there's the Internet. I, in fact, I was looking up the word contentment this week on the Internet. And I'm like, Google this. What comes up for contentment? And I found this. This is a great statement. Looking for contentment? Find exactly what you want today. eBay.com. You know, and these things, like the ice cream truck, they play a song. You know, they create noise in my life. They, they stir up static in the background. In just those moments where I'm like, I'm okay, and it just raises the blood pressure. But there's another kind of noise machine in my life. I don't know about yours. There's another kind of noise machine, and unfortunately, it's not outside. It's on the inside. Let me give you a few examples of this. So you go to the gym, and no matter how hard you work out at the gym there's always going to be skinnier people. There's always going to be more fit people. You're a musician. You know, you're a musician. You're really working on your music. You show up somewhere, and some other amateur musician is just way better than you. You know, these things happen to us all the time. You always have, you know, how many of you have friends who you're like, man, why are they always further ahead they're always further ahead than us. They're always further ahead than me. I feel like I'm perpetually behind. For those of you who are parents, going to the park is the worst part of this. You go to the park with your kids, and you're around other people, and you're, like, your radar just goes off of like how um, selfish your kids can be and how perfect other people's kids are. You know, you're comparing. Other people are comparing. Other people are looking at you. You know, these things create, it's, it's just a noise machine. And it's inside, and it's constantly producing static in my life, maybe in yours, saying, I'm not good enough. Look at me compared to them. What, what's wrong with me? What, what's going on? You know, there's static, there's noise that's going on all the time. You know, Psalm 131 gives a great image to describe such noise machines. Psalm 131 says, like a we like, like, I've weaned my, I have my soul as like a weaned child within me. And it's a great image because it says this, you know, like your soul many times is like a crying infant. It's like a fussy baby. Have you ever seen a baby on its mother's lap and it wants to nurse, it wants to eat, and it's just agitated? And nothing, you, you, the toys don't satisfy, you know, diversions, making funny faces. None of this satisfies. The, the, the baby's kind of whipping its head around and fussy and irritated and angry. And for many of us, that's what our souls are like. They're stirred up. And Psalm 131 says, look, that's a picture of discontentment. But there's another picture, a picture of a weaned child. A child, same kid, maybe a few weeks later, who's able to sit still. Who's able to sit still in its mother's lap, to give attention to other things, to be able to... to to be able to focus on something besides self and hunger in that moment. It's a picture of contentment. Contentment is a priceless commodity. It's a priceless commodity. Ben Franklin said this, Contentment makes poor men rich. Discontentment makes rich men poor. Probably the person who's written the like ultimate book on this is a, a guy, a Puritan named Jeremiah Burroughs. And the title of his book is really significant. He says, Contentment is a rare jewel. You know, he writes, There is more comfort in contentment than there is in any possession, 
whatsoever. A man has more comfort in being content without a thing than he can have in the thing that he desires in a discontented way. A man can have more contentment without a thing than the thing that he desires in a discontented way. You know, this is true. How many of you ever have experienced buyer's remorse? You know what buyer's remorse is, right? You, you, so you, you do all your work to find the car that you want to buy. So you go, you, go like, you do all the homework, you shop the dealerships, you get the best deal possible. You go purchase the car and you bring it home. This is a great car. Looks good, good mileage, got a good price. You bring it home and, you know, later that night, you're like, did I pay too much? Yeah, I don't. I don't think car really fits me. Or you know, you you notice there's a little ding on the back bumper. You just didn't notice it before, but there's a little ding, it just sort of bugs you. It's a buyer's remorse. It's just like this little itch. You know, all of us know this. You know, you can buy the car, you can pay the right price, but there's something you cannot buy with the car, and that is contentment. Contentment is priceless. You relate to this? I feel like this is a pair of those bedroom slippers that fit every feet. You know, there's no back on them. Everybody can slide into these, knowing what discontentment is like. Knowing the sense to which we're like, ah, the noise machine. You never turn it off. The crying baby. So what is contentment? Paul writes here, and he describes a life of contentment. And did you read what he said? Look at it here with verses 10 through 13. He talks about being content no matter the circumstances. In plenty, and want, having lots of things, having very few things. In fact, he's writing, this is a thank you note to this church saying, I really appreciate the gift that you sent me, but I'm okay. I was okay without it. I'm thankful for it. I'm glad you do it. I want you to keep giving. We'll talk about that next week. But I was con- I'm content. And he talks here about the secret of contentment. The word here for content is a word which in Greek means self-sufficiency. It means literally, I'm okay right now. Not I'm okay in and of myself, but I'm okay right now. You know, it means being able to look at good things, like a weaned baby, being able to look at things and say, you know, that's a good gift. I'm okay without it. That's a good gift. I'm glad I have it. My life is not defined by it. These good things that I have, the good job that I might have, these are, these are icing. The great gifts, I'm thankful for them. I don't need them. Sufficient. I'm okay. Most of us know what contentment is. I don't have to define this a whole lot. Even what it looks like. But we don't really know how to get this. Jeremiah Burroughs says that the way that we do this is by going to one of two things. And they're both mathematical. So uh, for you math geeks, you'll get this. So, you know, it's either addition or subtraction. It's either adding something to my life or taking something away from my desires. So let's look at both of those briefly. Addition or subtraction. Um, addition. This is the most obvious strategy for us, right? You know, look for relationships to fulfill. The professional success to feel successful. The status symbols to bring status. The comforts to bring comfort. The rest and vacation to bring rest. We look for those. We're like, if I have these things, if I can add something to my life, this is going to do it. This will bring contentment. It's addition. 
You know, many of you have read, um, and I'm going to pick on this author a little bit, Elizabeth Gilbert. Some of you have read uh, her book, Eat, Pray, Love, or seen the movie starring Julia Roberts, where she plays Elizabeth Gilbert. And uh, it's, it's a woman who is looking for satisfaction. In fact, the subtitle of her book is, it, is, it sums this up. It's entirely evocative of this quest. She says this, One woman's search for, ev- for everything across Italy, India, and Indonesia. I'm like, man... That's a great subtitle. One Woman's Search for Everything. I can relate to that. In her book, she writes this. She says, happiness is the consequence of personal effort. You fight for it, strive for it, insist upon it, and sometimes even travel around the world looking for it. You have to participate relentlessly in the manifestations of your own blessings. And once you have achieved a state of happiness, you must never become lax about maintaining it. You must make a mighty effort to keep swimming upward into that happiness forever, to stay afloat on top of it. Hear what she says? You want happiness in life? It's addition. You better go get it, and you better fight to keep it. It's about grabbing after other things. Mm, If I can have this. I know it's out there. I know contentment is just beyond the reach of where I am today. It's adding. You know... The problem with this, the problem with this that a lot of people have figured out, maybe some of, some of you are there, you've said, you know what, more stuff, more things in life don't bring it. In fact, they seem to create it. The poet Wallace Stevens in his poem, Sunday Morning, says this. He says, in contentment, I still feel the need for imperishable bliss. I still feel it. I'm like... You know, even when I'm full from a meal, it doesn't make me full for forever. I still get hungry again. I'm, I'm like, there's something beyond this. There's got to be something more. This is why America's first billionaire, John D. Rockefeller, when asked, you guys have probably heard this before, when asked how much money is enough, he said, what? A little bit more. Right? Something more. So if addition doesn't work, what about subtraction? Kill your desires. Pull back on the things that you long for. Just kind of pull it in. Settle. I'm going to pick on Elizabeth Gilbert again, because I like to. So um, in her book, Eat, Pray, Love, she goes on this journey from Italy, which sort of symbolizes, um, you know, getting, you know, like finding contentment and other things, to going to India, where where she learns this, and she writes this. She's seeking uh, happiness within. And she says this, We search for happiness everywhere, but we are like Tolstoy's fabled beggar who spent his life sitting on a pot of gold, yet under him the whole time. Your treasure, your perfection is within you already. But to claim it, you must leave the commotion of the mind and abandon the desires of the ego and enter into the silence of the heart. Now, that may sound like, Wow, she came up with this great idea. That's actually an ancient idea. This is an ancient Greek idea. There was a school of thought called the Stoics who were like, you know, if I can just kill off some desires in my life, if I could sort of just pull back on the things that I want, this will work. So one writer, Epictetus, said this, you start with a cup in your house. The cup breaks, and you look at it and say, I don't care. Then you go to your pets. You go to your dog or your horse and you say something happens to them and you be able, you have to train yourself to look at it and say, I don't care. 
then you get hurt or sick. And you look at this infirmity and you say, I don't care. And then you're able to go to the death or suffering of your loved one and be able to say, I don't care. One writer has said of this view of life that this makes the heart into a desert and calls it peace. Now, I would hasten to say, I, I, would, I, would, I would say that some of you are there. Not because you're um, a Stoic philosopher, but because you've been burned. Life has hurt you. You have looked for other things. You've said, yeah, I, if I, I've got this great relationship, and you have been hurt in deep and profound ways by people. And therefore, you're like, pull back. Subtraction. I can't expect other people to ever be, to ever really love me. But you're turning your heart into a desert and calling it peace, aren't you? See, addition doesn't work. And subtraction is like killing yourself slowly from the inside out. And this, you know, but I have to say, certainly, we are full. We're, we are a room full of Elizabeth Gilberts, aren't we? And we're surrounded by a society full of Elizabeth Gilberts. Many of us are deeply unhappy, and we're surrounded, for sure, by a group of people who are deeply unhappy. You know, so you know what I'm going to say next, right? I mean, you guys, you're in church. You know what I'm going to say next? You're like, I know Jesus is the answer. And you're right. Well done for today. So uh, in this passage, what does he say? I, can, I find contentment in Jesus. Thank you. Good answer this morning. In Jesus. And yet for some of you, you're like, well, turn down the volume on this one. I know how this sermon goes. Because you've heard this. Some of you have heard this. And for you, it, it just sounds like addition or subtraction. Addition. Add Jesus to your life. And that'll be, it'll work out. Or subtraction. Just stop wanting other things. And neither of those are helpful. In fact, some of you could preach this sermon up to this point. You're like, yes, yes. Addition is wrong. Subtraction is wrong. Jesus is the answer. And yet, I, if I sat down with you this week, and we sat and it really had a heart-to-heart -heart over coffee, you would say, I'm deeply unhappy. Jesus doesn't seem to be the answer. I got that. You know, and it's like, it's like you, have, you know where the well is. You're like, I know that's the well. That's the well over there. I can see the stones around it and the little crank and all that kind of stuff. But there's no bucket. I don't know how to get into this. I don't even know how to access this. How do we draw on Christ for contentment? You know, some of you are here and you're like wrestling. Is this Christianity stuff too? And I want to tell you, this is the well. But it's not automatic that Christians know how to apply this stuff, is it? Is it automatic? I mean, we look around and we're like, I want the contentment app. I really like the contentment app to plug into my life, God. Thank you very much. And Paul tells us here, he says, look, this doesn't come automatically. What does he say? In verse 11, I have learned... I have learned in whatever situation to be content. He had to learn this. This is something he had to walk through. It's not natural. What, what is natural? You know what's natural. Complaining. Comparing yourself to other people. You know, feeling restless. 
always wanting more than we have, even interpreting other people's good coming sort of at your expense. Why can't I have? You know, this doesn't, none of those things you have to be taught. Those come naturally. What has to come naturally is how do I draw this from Christ? <coughs> this composure is learned, and it's learned in relationship. And I, w- I want to look with you briefly uh, at three things, big surprise, three things that we see in Scripture here that tell us about drawing on Christ for contentment. And first, I'm going to go kind of global, big picture of the Bible, and I'm going to focus in very narrowly on this passage. So first is this, is it's neither addition or subtraction. You may be surprised to hear this, but contentment is not just something that's desirable. Like, we're all on a contentment quest. Everybody's looking for it. But the Bible actually commands it. Did you know that? The Bible commands contentment. Here's what I mean. If you look back at the Old Testament, our family has been studying this in our family devotion times, the Ten Commandments. We look back at the Ten Commandments, and these are, these are God's, the summation of God's law. And you come, we've been working through these things as a family, talking about them, and you come to the last commandment, which is this, do not covet. We read here, um, this, is, this is what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 5. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, <coughs> his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Coveting is just an old-fashioned word for discontentment, envy. It means inner grasping after things. I must have. I must have these things or I'm so empty. Now, isn't it strange that God would command us to contentment? Would say, this is part of what I have designed you for. Knowing me means living a lifestyle of contentment on the same order as don't murder, don't steal. Don't take someone else's wife, is be content. Do not covet. You know, so I have to say, and let me just be very gentle with this, but very clear. Discontentedness is a sin. You know, it's a respectable sin. It's one we sort of, it's annoying in other people. We're kind of like, yeah, you know, she's kind of whiny. He kind of complains a lot. But it's one we excuse in ourselves all the time. And yet, this is one that Jesus died for. This is one of the things that put Jesus on a Roman cross for people like us, is discontentedness. um, I think it was uh, the 16th century monk, Martin Luther, the guy who lit the match in the barn that became the Reformation. He said, you never break any of the Ten Commandments. Don't murder, don't steal, don't covet, without having broken the first commandment. Which is this. One God. God's first. There's only one God and you're not it. God first. Worship the Lord and serve Him only. Love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And this is how this connects. Look, if you don't know, if you don't know that discontentment is not just undesirable, but it's actually a sin, then you're going to come to the Bible like everybody does. Everybody comes to the Bible this way and says, God, can you come in and sort of arrange my life and fix my life so I'm happy? 
I want you to come in and make my life better. Come in and fix my circumstances. Jeff, what's the neat trick that you can tell me to sort of find happiness? How can I get God on that quest in my life? Because that's what I'm about. And see, that's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. How will God give me contentment? God will not give you contentment. Because He doesn't break His own commandments. If you've broken the tenth commandment, it's because you've broken the first one. It's because there's not, there's, you've taken God off the throne of the world and you said, you've put a whiny baby there. The whiny baby of self that says, I want. I'm not happy. I'm agitated. I need all these things. See, Paul's statement is so simple and it's so profound. Contentment. I have learned the secret of contentment. It's in Jesus. Jesus being the center. Jesus being on the throne. Jesus being the one that I live my life around. You see, it's not plugging contentment app into your life. It's plugging your life into God. One um, pastor, Tim Keller, I heard this sermon by him a couple years ago. He said, he said this, the heart is conductive material. It's conductive material. It's, something's meant to flow through it. Power is meant to flow through it in your life. And it's, if you take that and you hook up, you, you hook that, you try to make God kind of fit within a, a, a contentment app into your life, the stuff falls apart. The machinery doesn't work. You're designed to make much of God. You're designed to say, Lord, if I love you with all that I am, that's where contentment comes from. You will find that like in Him, are, as we said at the beginning of the service, those call the worship words, those aren't empty words. You know, the, the river of all delights, the great source of all joy, the abundance of pleasure, those things are found in Him. But they're not found in a life where you're saying, God, over here, fix my life, make it work around what I want. Second, see, Paul, this is the background of this. The whole Bible is about this. Living a life around God. I can do all things in Christ. Christ is my hope for contentment. Second is this. Look at this passage. Look at verse 13. It says here, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Unfortunately, this verse has been like source material for bumper stickers and cross-stitch patterns and, and for like bookmarks for way too long. And it's hard for us to hear this because it makes it sound like Christians are superheroes. So to quote from Superman, from those of you who remember this like I do, you know, faster than a speeding bullet with Jesus, more powerful than a locomotive with Jesus, able to leap tall buildings with Jesus, Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Jeff Bradford with Jesus. Right? We hear it that way. We're like, some of you are like, you know, that's, this sounds so corny to you. Because you're like, I know that's not true. But see, Paul is talking about something here that is equally as impossible, as equally as superpower-ish in our world to find contentment in Christ. Don't you think that's sort of superpower-ish? How many people do you know who are satisfied, deeply satisfied, like a weaned child? You know, I think it's very significant 
to look at this, this, the words of this passage. I think the words here tell us something we need to hear. And I'm the only person, I looked up commentators, and I'm the only person saying this, so I could be way off. But I think that this is significant. You look at this passage, and Paul says something here which absolutely challenges our categories of how contentment comes. See, we think of contentment as something that we be. It's reactive. It's, it's in response to good things. I am content in a good meal. I received something, and I respond to it. I'm content in this. And so you might look at this passage where Paul says, I have learned the secret to contentment. And based on our categories, you would expect them to say, I've learned the secret of contentment. It's in being content in God. And he doesn't say that. What does he say? He, says, he uses not a word that's passive, not a word that's responsive. He uses a word that's active. He says, I can do. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you hear the language there? I think that's very significant. It challenges our categories of saying, contentment is just something that happens to me. It's just a reaction. I can't control it. He's saying, no, it is active. It is something you do. It is something you, you, you have to work on. It is a decision. It's a choice. See, such purpose, purposeful quietness of spirit is not something that happens. It's something that is chosen. It's consciously enjoying the fact that God is good in the midst of circumstances that are not. It's, constant, it's, it's, it's consciously choosing, Jesus, you are the king of the world, even though when today it feels like you're not. It's very focusedly saying, be still, insides. Stop churning. Focus on what is true. This is true of what Christians have done throughout the centuries. There's a woman named uh, Catherine von Schlegel who wrote a hymn in the 1700s based on the words from Psalm uh, 131 about my soul being like a weaned child. And she wrote this, this song, and it says, Be still, my soul. The Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide in every change. He is, his faithfulness will remain. Be still, my soul. Now, why does she have to tell herself that? It sounds like she's kind of nuts. Be still, self. Hey, self, stop it. But she's reminding herself of what is true. She is choosing worship. And she's saying, I have to sing these things. This song actually was the, um, the favorite hymn of a guy some of you have heard of named Eric Little. Eric Little is famous for having been the guy made famous by Chariots of Fire, who, uh, when it came to the Olympics, he was, for doing, he was doing track events, and he would not run on the Sabbath day. He's like, I will not do it. I choose to worship God. And this song actually became his favorite song, because he, after the Olympics, he was a missionary in China. And he was in a very, he was in uh, terrible conditions, was under, uh, was put in a concentration camp with Chinese with, with, with Chinese uh, folks there, and he was suffering greatly, and he taught this song to the Chinese. This is what sustained him through the internment of his prison. You know, and I want to just tell you, like, look, this stuff, you know, we're not the first generation who struggled with, con- with discontent. Just because you have lots of noise doesn't mean that the internal noise has been any different throughout the centuries. Everybody struggles. And Christians in centuries past have said, do 
active. I have to fight for this. I have to really work to take these things that I know are true and sing them into my life every day. I have to work for this. Contentment is something that I sing into my life. This is what sustained this man in great want. This is what sustains Christians throughout our world in plenty and in want. Third, Paul shows us the eyes of contentment. It may seem a little odd to you to read verse 10. Some of you may be like, okay, let's, you know, I don't really know what to do with this. In verse 10 he says this, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. What Paul's saying is this. He's saying, look, Philippian church, I appreciate the gift. And I recognize that it's been a long time since I've heard from you. In fact, it had been 10 years since Paul went to Philippi to start this church. You can read about that in Acts 16. 10 years since he'd seen them. 10 years since he had heard from them. And Paul's been through a lot of junk in his life. And these people, he hasn't heard from them before. He hasn't heard from them since that time. And yet he's saying, look, I recognize, I don't hold it against you, that you haven't sent me any financial support or any notes or encouraging emails. I mean, we don't know why he hadn't heard from them. Maybe they were going through hard times. Maybe they didn't know where, where he was. Who knows? But these people, he's saying, it's okay. I was okay through this. Because of this one little word. You did not have the last word in the sentence. Opportunity. It's the word kairos in Greek. It means season. Appointed time. See, Paul is saying here, I recognize that even though circumstances are what they are, it is God who sets up the appointed seasons in my life. God is the one. God is the one who's behind you know, the events of this world and whether or not I got a letter here or whether I didn't or why these things happened in my life. He's saying, look, I understand that there's a sovereign God who is good, who is working, who is not absent, who is behind the events of everything that's going on around me. And therefore, he's saying, I was okay. Look, unless you understand this, unless you get this, you will never be content because you're going to be like trying to wrestle God. Like, ugh, you know, why aren't you doing this right now? God, what's the deal? You know, the timing, your timing is so off. Yeah, I can tell you, one of the things that we have watched over and over for us as a community of faith is God's perfection in, in his timing and his provision for this church. You know, we've, we've never had a in the red deficit year. God's provided us places to meet. He's provided us leaders. He's provided us, you know, new church planners. God has been over and abundant to us in giving. And we need stories from other brothers and sisters to remind us of this stuff. Because left to yourself, you will lock yourself in your room and you convince yourself that God doesn't care. And that somehow he's left the control of the universe. The wheel's just spinning round and round. You're in a, 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 just a donut in the parking lot. And see, this is what comforted Christians in years past. Now listen, don't hear me wrong in this. I'm not saying this means being resigned to your circumstances. Just sort of practice subtraction. Paul t- still tells the people here, as we read last week, hey, if 
you're asking, you should ask God to do things in your life. You should ask God to open doors. You want to be married? Pray. God, yes, I'd like to be married, but this isn't going to master me. God, I would like a different job, but this isn't going to master me. Trusting God for the seasons, asking Him, and then trusting Him with the results of what happens in that. Asking Him to work. I want to close um, by reminding you, by reminding you that our God is, a, is, a, is not a stingy God. Our God is a gracious and generous God who loves His children and prizes our children and even prizes our joy. And I want to read to you, um, I've read this once before in this context, but I think it's helpful. And sometimes it's helpful to hear things from a children's perspective. I want to close from this um, parable that Jesus tells as, as uh, told in the Jesus Storybook Bible. I can show you the pictures later on. You're not close enough here. Once upon a time, there was a man working in a field, digging. So there he is digging. But what he doesn't know is that in that field is a buried treasure. So dig, 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 clink, clank, clonk. Uh-oh. His shovel bumps into something hard. Hello, what's this? He picks it up, dusts it off. It's a chest. It's rusted and locked, but creak. He pries it open. What he sees inside takes his breath away. Beautiful, glittering, gleaming, twinkling, sparkling, precious jewels. It's a treasure chest. He wants that treasure. He needs to get that treasure. He must have that treasure somehow even if he has to sell everything so he can pay for it. He quickly buries the treasure again, runs home, and sells everything he has. He takes the money from the sale and goes and buys that field. And now he owns the field and the treasure that's buried in it. He runs back and digs up the treasure again. Jesus said, coming to God is as wonderful as finding a treasure. You might have to dig before you find it. You might have to look before you see it. You might even have to give up everything you want to look to, to have it. But being where God is, being in His kingdom, that's most important than anything else in all the world. It's worth anything that you have to give up, Jesus told them. Because God is the real treasure. God had a treasure too, of course. A treasure that was lost long, long ago. What was God's treasure? His most important thing? The thing God loved best in all the world? God's treasure was His children. It's why Jesus had to come into the world to find God's treasure and to pay the price to win them back. And Jesus would do it even if it cost Him everything He had. Brothers and sisters, Jesus treasures us. And he longs for our freedom and joy more than you can possibly imagine. This is why he commands contentedness. Because he knows the things that we would add to life, the ways that we would subtract, those are empty holes. His is the real treasure. I want to urge you this morning to come to him to forsake your adding and your subtracting and your working and your scheming. 
Jesus has given us everything in himself, in him. In the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.